Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week with a variable degree of snarkiness. I'm not your host, Tom Hollingsworth. Instead, I'm your host, Stephen Foskett. And joining me today, instead of Tom, uh, since he's at Aruba's Atmosphere Conference this week, is my co-host, the host of the Art of Network Engineering podcast, Mr. Tim Bertino. Welcome to the show, Tim. Steven, thank you for having me. I, I saw that today is uh, National Pretzel Day. So, you know, in terms of finding a bright spot in a world of that can have its trials and tribulations, to quote the infamous words of Stanley Hudson of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, but on Pretzel Day, I like Pretzel Day. Wise words, deep words leaving me at a loss for what to respond. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Tim. You know, this could get exponentially worse, like the Richter scale. And today, in fact, is National Richter Scale Day. Um, just wedging that right in there. Let's turn to the week's news instead of trying to make continual puns. CrowdStrike uh, has announced CrowdStream, powered by Cribble. This offering is meant to simplify how customers get data from many different sources into the CrowdStrike ecosystem to do detection and response. Uh, we've heard from Cribble at our networking field day events and security field day, uh, how important is uh, unique data, data aggregated into a single platform? Stephen, I want to highlight a quote directly from the, the article we're linking to, and it reads that cybersecurity is fundamentally a data problem. And I, I agree with that 100%. There's a, an old security-related adage that that states something along the lines of "you can't protect what you don't, what you can't see, and what you don't know about." And I think what CrowdStrike is after here is to find really an easy way, if there is such a thing, to get data from different platforms because not not one source in terms of cybersecurity information is going to give you everything that you need. You need to rely on different platforms. And obviously, to be able to rely on that intelligence fusion, you need a platform to do that. And that's what it really seems CrowdStrike's trying to do with CrowdStream here. I would really have to read into this more to understand how they're going to do that, because they're claiming uh, that you can easily connect and route data from any source into their uh, CrowdStrike Falcon platform. So I'd really be interested if it's just a bunch of different APIs or, or how they're doing that. But there, this does sound like a big play to be able to feed into uh, their XDR platform. So Stephen, Canonical has released Ubuntu 23.04, codenamed Lunar Lobster. Somebody needs to receive an award for that naming, by the way which includes a new installer that enables enterprise deployment and customization at scale, as well as native user authentication with Azure Active Directory for Ubuntu desktops. Ubuntu 23.04 also includes improved workflows for cross-platform development, more controls for apps and snaps, and enhancements to the Ubuntu gaming experience, among other features. Is this new release more about desktop or is there much more for the server and cloud to get excited about? Well, it's the year of the Linux desktop, as you of course know. Uh, no, actually this is absolutely more of a desktop release. Uh, for one reason, it's important to point out, this is not an LTS release. Uh, those of you who, uh, like me who do a lot of work with Ubuntu uh, on the server side and in the cloud, are still uh, probably struggling to adapt to Jammy Jellyfish, which came out uh, back a, a year ago, 
Uh, that's uh, 2204, which is the latest uh, long-term stable release of Ubuntu. Uh, since then, we've seen uh, Kinetic Kudu uh, in October, and of course, Lunar Lobster here uh, this April. The next long-term release of Ubuntu won't come out until uh, next year. So for us who are looking at this from a server and enterprise perspective, honestly, no, this is not for you. But that being said, I think it's sometimes a good idea to experiment with these things anyway. My, my strategy when there's a new release of Ubuntu is to install it on a you know, scratch machine that I've got, um, try it out, see what it can do. And, and start getting used to some of the new features. So from that perspective, I'm going to call out just a couple things that might be relevant in the future to those of us in the enterprise. First off, um, 2304 includes uh, an updated Linux kernel, uh, kernel 6.2, um, which came out a couple of months ago. Um, there's not a lot in there, again, that really is going to be kind of groundbreaking and earth-shattering for, for folks, but there is a lot more stuff in there that might in the future be useful. So, for example, there's um, support for RISC-V and Apple M1 processors. There's better support for things like power saving and wake on LAN. There's ButterFS updates and XFAT driver updates and ZFS and, you know, Th things like that that are in there that, that you might want to look at. Uh, probably a bigger thing that we're going to see in um, the next release, and this is something that you really in the enterprise really ought to start getting a look at, is the updated network manager that's included in Ubuntu. Uh, this uh, release includes network manager uh, 1.42, which uh, again came out a, a couple of months ago, but is now here in a stable-ish, if not a long-term release uh, network manager is one of the things that really has me pulling my hair out every time there's a, an Ubuntu release. And this one's no exception. It includes some new features, uh, load balancing, um, support for uh, different kinds of tunnels and things. I'm still looking at it. But the point is, uh, this is going to affect us with the next LTS release. And so it's time to start looking at the new uh, network manager features just to make sure that you're ready for it. There's also the question of snaps. Um, one of the things that uh, this release of Ubuntu does is basically automatic uh, snap updates, downloads and updates in the background while you're running. Again, I very much suspect that that's going to come to the next LTS release, and that's going to be a big thing for us to get, to get used to when we're talking servers. Uh, so all of these things, I think, are something to explore, something to experiment with, but not really something to worry about because frankly, you're not gonna run 2304. You really shouldn't run 2304 in a production cloud application or server space. You should really just use it as a uh, test bed getting ready for 2404, which is gonna come out in a year and is gonna have a lot of the same technology. Tim, the US Department of Homeland Security has announced the creation of a new task force to determine how the federal government can leverage artificial intelligence to protect the country. With this announcement, two examples were given on how AI could be useful for this purpose. One is to screen cargo for goods made by forced labor. And the other is to better find and identify fentanyl and shippers in the US. In a related story last week, US Central Command announced that it had hired former Google AI cloud director, Andrew Moore, to be its first advisor on subjects such as AI, robotics, and cloud computing. Tim, apart from the obvious buzzwords, 
Is this just a matter of time that government agencies start looking into AI? And is this going to really do anything? Yeah, those are great questions. I I do think that it's interesting that the federal government in the U.S. is officially taking, starting to show that they're taking a stance on AI, because you said there's there's a lot of buzzwords in this conversation. They're really, how I read this is that they're really looking at ways of how do we get, create computer computing systems to mimic human intelligence and, and potentially be better at finding certain things than uh, humans are. So again, I think it's interesting, not only that they're, they're taking a stance, they're developing this task force. But another thing I found interesting is that they didn't just say, we're going to try to develop AI systems and figure out how we can get the benefits of AI while, you know, not falling into some of those pitfalls, uh, such things like um, biases and that kind of thing. Not only did they just say that, but they took it one step further and gave real world examples. So I'm, I'm wondering if these are just uh, major problems that were already on the radar for DHS or if they uh, already have a good idea of what they're going to do. And then again, I, I also did want to call out the uh, Andrew Moore thing that federal government in another agency has already really adopted this methodology by bringing in somebody who has experience, leader of Google AI Cloud. So this is going to be really interesting to see how this develops, uh, not only developing, but seeing how how much information the federal government will bring out into the public to see how this um, how this shifts over time. I think it's really going to be interesting to see what they do. Stephen, BMC has acquired Israeli mainframe VTL and data export startup Model 9 and plans to combine their cloud data management for mainframe solutions with its own mainframe and hybrid cloud software and services. This is BMC's sixth acquisition in three years, with the previous ones being RSM Partners, CompuWare, Alderstone, Comaround, and Streamweaver. What does this tell us about mainframe software in solution space? Well, I think what it tells us is that the mainframe software space is still going very, very strong. Those of you like me who've been in the IT industry for a long time are familiar with the name BMC because, frankly, they were one of the absolutely indispensable software providers in mainframe and big iron enterprise servers all the way back uh, through the 80s and the 90s. Um, just as a little bit of background, uh, BMC was purchased, uh, yeah, by private equity back in 2013, and then sold again to another private equity company in 2018 um, as a way to hopefully, uh, you know, kind of reestablish the company. And that's pretty much what they've done. Um, to be honest with you, BMC is actually building quite a good little enterprise here. Um, one of the challenges with the mainframe is that by definition, it's not um, compatible with uh, a lot of the modern paradigms of data management, especially cloud and uh, object storage. But yet, frankly, mainframe applications still run the world and are unlikely to change that anytime soon. So what you need is a lot of ways to get data in and out of a mainframe efficiently and be able to run modern analytics and integrate with other modern applications. And that's just what BMC is trying to do. It seems to me that this is the company that is really focused on modernizing sort of the mainframe data flow. 
and providing a, um, a, a, a modern uh, enterprise and cloud compatible data fabric for mainframe applications. And that's a pretty great strategy. Um, honestly, this, this all makes a lot of sense. Uh, we had seen Model 9 a few years ago. Um, again, if you're not familiar with the whole concept of VTL, uh, the, the name really doesn't do it justice. The idea is that you present what looks like a tape library to a legacy system, but instead of storing that stuff on tape, you store it someplace more useful, like uh, disk arrays or uh, nowadays on modern cloud storage uh, using the S3 protocol. And then you make that data more useful and available, either by providing data management features natively or by integrating it with external applications. And that is what Model 9 is trying to do. And frankly, they've, they've done a nice job of it. They're basically allowing data to be brought in and out of mainframes and stored in S3. Uh, Amazon, uh, AWS themselves announced a partnership uh, just at last December to uh, bring mainframe data and applications into AWS. Uh, the company also is working with Hitachi Vantara, which is another company that you know you really ought to know if you're in the enterprise space because they build a lot of the big iron, uh, more modern systems. And all of this leads us to the natural conclusion that this BMC deal uh, really talks about sort of the way that the mainframe works in the modern enterprise, which is that it, yeah, it's a mainframe and it runs mainframe applications, but that data is integrated um, beyond the mainframe. It gets into the cloud, it's uh, useful in enterprise data analytics applications, and a lot of that stuff needs this kind of integration. So overall, I'm very impressed by this, uh, this move, and I think that it's, it's really great for the industry. At RSA 2023, Cisco announced its new cloud-first extended de detection and response, or XDR, offering. The goal of this offering is to simplify security operations by prioritizing and automatically remediating security incidents. The solution is now in beta, hitting GA in July of this year. Along with leveraging native telemetry within uh, Cisco's own ecosystem, Cisco XDR can integrate with third-party products in the space of endpoint detection and response, email threat defense, next generation firewall, and security information and event management. Tim, what does this mean for Cisco to enter the XDR space and how achievable is automated incident response when it comes to security events? I do think that this is kind of the natural next step for Cisco's security practice. Over the years, they have done some, some major acquisitions that they've completed for companies like Sourcefire and bringing in Snort into their next generation firewalls and intrusion prevention systems. So again, to me, XDR does feel like the, the next natural step for them. And let's kind of frame up what that means. We're very, very security focused in, in uh, this week's episode. So I, I see XDR is, is really being a holistic solution, SaaS-based solution typically for doing not only threat detection, but incident response. So I do think um, Cisco has an opportunity to make a splash in this space. I do think that that there are a lot of um, competitors, but they have done, in my opinion, security well over the years. I love what the uh, the Talos group does as far as um, threat intel. So I, I do think there is, uh, there is opportunity for Cisco in this space. Now, the second part of that is how feasible is 
automated remediation. In our earlier XDR talk, we were talking about, you know, how do we how do we find threats is is the first thing, and then how do we fix them? So the automated remediation, having that data is really only half the battle. You need to be able to act on it, and not only just act on it, but be confident in how you're acting on it, and which means you don't want a whole lot of false positives because you want to secure the business without impacting the business, right? So I I do think this is a really interesting offering that they're jumping into this space and we'll see where it takes them over the coming months. So Rubrik is teaming up with Zscaler to automate sensitive data and file detection and classification, aiming to prevent data leaks outside an organization's IT boundaries. Rubrik brings their sensitive data monitoring and management technology to discover and classify sensitive data while Zscaler provides cloud security tools to detect known file exfiltration. What should customers make of the combination of these two? Well, as you know, um, the whole concept of uh, DLP or uh, data loss prevention software is to avoid some of the stuff that's been in the news, uh, the mainstream media news the last couple of weeks, essentially to keep people from walking off with your data. The problem though with a lot of DLP solutions is that they're sort of, um, well, they're solutions in search of information. Essentially, unless you tell it what data needs to be loss prevented, um, it doesn't know. And so it's going to either be set loose on too big of a data set, and you really don't want to have DLP running on everything, or uh, too small of a data set. In other words, uh, you know, people can steal this, but not that. Uh, this is why this kind of makes sense. So let's let's uh, flip things over here. So Rubrik is, as you know, a data protection company. They essentially are pulling data in all the time. Uh, they do some really clever stuff, including some clever security-related stuff, like uh, you know, basically watching uh, as data changes over time to see if there's been a malware attack, that kind of thing. Um, but one of the things that Rubrik can do, and this is one of the, the sort of claims to fame since we first saw them back at Tech Field Day years and years ago when they launched, is that they actually look at the data and they say, you know, what is this? What is this kind of data? And they have some, some basic data classification capability built in there. What you can do with this combination uh, between Rubik and Zscaler is to basically merge those things so that if the Rubrik system determines that a certain amount of data is important, mission critical, sensitive, then it can tell the Zscaler, the uh, DLP system, that, hey, you need to watch to make sure this stuff doesn't get exfiltrated. Honestly, it's a great combination. Uh, one of the challenges, though, of course, is that like any system, it still needs um, people to actively engage and, and help it uh, help it know what's important and what's not. I mean, Rubrik can only do so much without the involvement of the administrators. So that being said, I, I think this is a great solution. I really look forward to seeing this sort of combination coming about. And frankly, what we talked about at Storage Field Day recently was that solutions like these really are what's going on and what's going to happen with the storage industry going forward. It's not about the storage, it's about the data. Tim, now let's take a closer look at something that we're seeing in the news this week. Um, we're, not a we're not financial analysts and uh, we don't pretend to be them, but it's hard to overlook 
some of the big financial stories that we see, especially when they impact the enterprise technology industry. And that's why this week we're going to be looking at Google Cloud in a little bit more depth. So in the three years that Google has been releasing financial metrics for their cloud business, they've never turned a profit until now. Their offerings under this umbrella include the Google Cloud Platform, which you may be aware of, along with Google Workspace, which has had many, many names, but is basically, you know, the Google Drive stuff. Uh, these two products now account for 10% of Alphabet's total revenue. And um, this is actually a wonderful thing because, as you know, I mean, uh, most of Alphabet's revenue comes from advertising. This comes from actually, you know, making stuff work in the enterprise, which is great. Does this mean that the uh, cloud business is going to be increasingly a priority for Google? I personally think it does. In fact, th this article really exploited a couple things that I didn't know about Google Cloud. One, that it's been just three years since they have been reporting these financial metrics, but also that it had not been, that business unit had not been profitable until now. I was having a conversation with the, the team over at the Cables to Clouds podcast and they had mentioned that they were kind of interested to see where Google was going to take this cloud business over uh, the next X amount of years, because it really does seem that they want to, Google as a company wants to embrace and develop AI is what seems to be a top priority for them. So I think we weren't really sure what that was going to mean for the different uh, cloud business units that Google has. Now, now that they're turning a profit and showing that they're really starting to get market share, I, I do think that means a lot and is good for Google to continue to invest in these platforms. Google Workspace is an interesting one for me. As you said, it's been around in one form or another, many different names for, for different years, but we're really talking about the email and collaboration apps. And it really does seem that they are starting to make a push, not only, I mean, since the beginning, it's been great for consumers, right? Like everybody, many people have had Gmail accounts, use Google Drive. It does seem like they're really starting to make a push into the enterprise space and, and giving some competition back to, to Microsoft. So it'll be really interesting to see how they continue to develop both of those um, cloud offerings and how much market share they can get not only on the workspace side, but also getting more and more customers into the Google Cloud platform. Another thing I'd say, Tim, is, uh, you know, we have to look at this a little bit with a grain of salt because, of course, uh, Google has had quite a lot of layoffs recently. And so one could, you know, a cynic could look at this and say, well, yeah, they turned a profit because they got rid of all the people. And I'm sure that getting rid of all the people didn't hurt. But there was another thing in the disclosures, the SEC filings, that really piqued my interest. And this is something that I haven't seen much discussion of online yet. And that is that Google is extending the useful life of its servers and networking equipment to six years. This is a huge change for the hyperscalers. One of the reasons that we're in the tech recession that we're in, in other words, all these tech companies are facing such huge financial headwinds, everyone from component manufacturers like you know RAM and SSDs and hard drives, all the way up to the chip makers, to the big OEMs, the software vendors, is that all of these companies were so dependent on revenue from the hyperscalers for so, you know, for, for, for quite a few years here, especially during the pandemic, when it seemed like everybody was working from home and everybody needed online services and all the companies invested and invested and hired and hired. Well, 
all of that came to a screeching halt last year. And in fact, uh, somebody slammed the car into reverse, started getting rid of people, started trimming acquisitions, stopped buying. And that's been a huge issue for so many of the products and technologies that we talk about here on The Rundown. This news is actually a huge, huge um, shot across the bow of the enterprise technology companies. And as I said, I haven't seen a lot of discussion of this online. So one of the things that you need to know about uh, the collision between finance and technology is that equipment is, uh, e it can either be written off the day you buy it or it can be depreciated over a number of years. And depreciation essentially says that the useful life of a piece of equipment is so many years, and therefore I'm going to declare, um, uh, I'm going to annualize the, uh, the, the, the tax hit, or the tax benefit actually, of that over time. Now it's easy to think of this in something like a big bulldozer or a printing press or something that may be good for 30 years. Um, it's a lot harder when you're talking about IT equipment. And traditionally, IT equipment has been depreciated much, much shorter. In fact, a lot of companies don't bother to depreciate, but some of those companies that do are looking at three or four years, not six years. So Google is now depreciating over six years. What this means is that Google is not only saying that, that, that this equipment will, from a tax perspective, be useful for six years, but they're also making a commitment to their investors that they're gonna to try to get six years of useful life out of this equipment. And that is huge because think about it, if Google is gonna refresh their equipment, let's say every four years they refresh uh, a given piece of equipment, they throw it out, get a new one in there, and then they move to six years, that means that they're buying you know, not as much equipment, maybe half as much equipment, um, especially now, because what happens is in the time that you go from a shorter depreciation to a longer depreciation, well, you might not be buying as much equipment in that window. This obviously applies only to new stuff, but uh, there's not as much new stuff coming in. So what this means, I think, is that there's this tech recession that we're living through. It's not stopping. It's not going to stop soon. And in fact, it's going to be with us for at least a few more years as uh, hyperscalers like Google slow their purchasing, try to get more useful life out of equipment, and try to continue to make better use and actually you know, make profitable use of the equipment, people, and products that they have. So all of this goes to basically say that uh, you know, the cloud industry isn't maturing. The cloud industry has matured. And now we're looking at companies like Google and Amazon Web Services that are trying to make money here instead of just trying to blindly invest. I do think the the number of six years is quite large for a hyperscaler. I mean, in the the hyperscaler DevOps world of move fast and break things, constantly churning in applications and systems, including hardware, uh, committing to six years does seem like a big deal to me. Now. I, we're talking a lot about the finances here. Is this, Stephen, do you think this is mainly geared toward finances or is there potentially a, a sustainability play from the, the hyperscalers, especially Google, in committing to longer term um, commitments on their gear? Yeah, the sustainability thing is interesting. And I'm glad you brought that up, Tim, because it's kind of a double-edged sword. Think about the, the power and cooling requirements and processing capabilities of, of the devices that you bought six years ago. And now think about the products that you have today. 
I mean, six years ago, this would have been a magical, unheard of phone. And yet today, this is what everybody has. The, there's, there's kind of a push and pull here when it comes to sustainability, because on the one hand, nothing is more financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable than continuing to use something well past its intended lifespan. A uh, you know 1992 Chevy Suburban is lower impact on the environment than a brand new Tesla. That is for sure, even taking into account the gas mileage and energy efficiency of the thing, simply because you didn't have to make a new one. And yet, and yet, there isn't, it is true that eventually you have to refresh this stuff and the new stuff is much more efficient, you know, both in terms of energy and performance. And so I'm a little bit interested here because, you know, on the one hand, you could say, yeah, from a sustainability perspective, Google is going to benefit because they're going to use stuff longer and not buying stuff, not producing stuff and using what you've got longer is better for the environment. It's better for shareholders. It's better for everybody. That is true. But continuing to rely on 15 nanometer servers when we've got three nanometer parts coming is not better for the environment, you know, because it's going to take so much more power and cooling. And some of this stuff has become literally an order of magnitude better in terms of the uh, power versus performance curve over a six year time frame. So it is quite possible that this could actually be a net negative, even though we're not manufacturing new stuff and we're getting more life out of, uh, out of stuff. But that's not true for everything. And it's probably better for them to continue using stuff as long as it's still useful and productive instead of, you know, continually buying new stuff. Well, thanks for joining me here on the Gestalt IT Rundown, Tim. I really appreciated your thoughts. And it was great to have somebody who really knows the, this networking and security space fill in while Tom's away. So as I mentioned earlier, Tom has been away at Networking Field Day Experience at Aruba Atmosphere this week, and we've had some great presentations, including some announcements there. So head on over to your friendly neighborhood search engine and search for Tech Field Day and Aruba Atmosphere 2023, and you'll see some of those announcements. We're also going to be publishing them across our social media channels. May 17th through 19th, we have Mobility Field Day 9 coming up. That's where we bring together a lot of these companies in the Wi-Fi and 5G and mobility space. Uh, check that out at techfieldday.com. Thanks for watching the Gestalt IT Rundown. You can catch new episodes every Wednesday as a YouTube video or in your favorite podcast application. We'll be back next Wednesday to talk about the IT news of the week that was. Until then, for myself, for Mr. Tim Bertino, uh, for Tom Hollingsworth, who's not here this week, and for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours a great pretzel day.